Hi, I'm Jesse Phillips. In August 2016, I decided to travel the world. I'm formerly a technology investment banker and growth equity investor that was based in Washington, D.C. While I learned a lot about businesses in the U.S., I didn't learn much about businesses in other countries. Hence this podcast, Startup Journeys. By listening to this podcast, you'll take a journey with me around the globe and listen in on conversations with investors and entrepreneurs. We'll learn about technology, innovation, investing, and global markets. So sit back, put your legs up, and let's get started. This city was colonized by England as a penal colony in 1788, when a fleet of 11 ships and 850 convicts left England and traveled for months. Convicts built the colony, and by 1840 the colony's population was 35,000. In 1850, gold was found and the colony's population exploded. Finally, in 1901, the colony joined with five other bordering colonies to form a commonwealth the Commonwealth of Australia. In today's podcast, we're in Sydney, known for its beautiful beaches, stunning harbor, and the remarkable Sydney Opera House. The city serves as a financial capital for Oceania. Every multinational bank has a regional headquarters here. In addition to financial services, manufacturing and tourism are top industries. So what about the startup ecosystem? You know, one of the... uh great things about Australia uh, in terms of hiring product people, so engineers or designers, um, software developers, um, you do have a competitive advantage in hiring people. That's Nikki Shavak, co-founder and director of Blackbird Ventures, the largest venture capital fund in Australia. I sat down with Nikki at Blackbird's offices in Surrey Hills, Sydney. In this conversation, we talk about Aussie's great startup successes, what it means to be global day one, not having an exit strategy, waves of technology innovation, and a whole lot more. So to start off, uh, Nikki, you know, I recently read uh, a headline which says, policymakers and startup funders say Australia is one of the best at innovating new business ideas but is the worst at actually turning them into into businesses. Is that does that resonate with you here? I think if you look at it through a particular lens, um, what they're saying with that is that people with ideas at universities or who are making uh, uh, breakthroughs in particular uh, fields of research have a bad track record at taking that uh, research and making it a business and having customers actually use the product. And so. Uh, that's certainly one way innovation happens, uh, you know, in the labs of universities and and uh, the the sort of roots of academia. But I would say uh, in that avenue, Australia has done really, really poorly, and that's what the the headlines are describing. Um, if you look at uh, more uh, non-traditional ways of uh, folks just running into a problem and and you know that problem itching so much that they have to. Uh, dedicate their lives to solving it and that that more kind of uh, lightweight entrepreneurship that uh, Australia's done really, really well at. So, you know, companies like uh, Atlassian or Campaign Monitor or Envato or 
Halfbrick Studios, which produces Fruit Ninja and a number of other games, uh, lots of enterprise software companies. Uh, if you look at how they were founded, it was just by the force of will of the founders and uh, you know, not from the, uh, the halls of, of academia. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And, and I know Atlassian, uh, now really a global enterprise software company, set uh, an Australian record with a, a $4.4 billion market cap. Do you think that's catalyzing some entrepreneurial spirit here? And, and what have you seen um, at the helm of, of Blackbird? Yeah, I mean, Atlassian is is one of the lighthouse success stories of, of Australia and has pioneered a way uh, to build an enterprise software company that uh, a few other Australians have followed. And um, if you think about uh, Australia, which is very geographically uh, remote to a lot of other uh, countries, um, is small enough that you know people usually don't think um, to just build a company for Australia. Um, and I think because of those constraints of a small, smaller population and uh, it being so far away from other time zones, um, Atlassian, uh, model, Atlassian's model of selling its uh, enterprise software through you know, a very transparent website where people know the pricing, they don't have to speak to uh, a salesperson and play golf and have a steak dinner, they can yeah. just download and use the software uh, free for 30 days and decide whether the product does solve their problems or not, and if it does, put down their credit card and, and start paying for the software. And I think, you know, just that idea which doesn't seem new in in 2016, um, was just very new in uh, 2002 when Atlassian started um, and came about, I think, because of those constraints of, um, you know, Australia being a very remote place, uh, Mike and Scott being very young, unqualified founders at at that point in time. And um, uh, what a really wonderful business story that has become and uh, many other Australian companies like Campaign Monitor, like Envato and Canva and, and a bunch of other, you know, great stories that we've been uh, able to be involved in with, with Blackbird. Um, I think Atlassian is that lighthouse example yeah. of um, how to build a global company from Australia. And so maybe we'll, we'll see a few more Atlassians in the, in the coming years. Yeah, absolutely. And so you spoke to, to uh, Australia and Sydney's remoteness to the world. What qualities of Sydney do you think, uh, you know, support and uh, strengthen the the ecosystem here? Um, And what things do you think, uh, you know, entrepreneurs and founders could bring to the rest of the world and and bring a new perspective? I think, uh, you know, Australians are very pragmatic. Um, uh, They don't complain about things. They just get on with things and and do them. Um, I think Australia has uh, kind of culture of ambition in in the sporting world where uh, oftentimes Australia will bat way above its weight um, in in the sporting world and so there's that element of uh, competitiveness that people do want to be the best Uh, it's always very hard to describe something in a very general way uh, at a country level or even at a city level Um, you know the question that you know we try to answer every day at Blackbird is are there a handful of people each year of sufficient, uh, you know, world quality who have great ambition, who are trying to do their life's, life's work uh, with a company. And I think, um, you know, if you compare the cream of uh, Australia or the cream of Sydney and Melbourne and other cities to the to the cream of Silicon Valley and so on, I think you'd find that um, the the Australian, uh, you know, very, very upper echelons of, of quality are, are directly comparable. 
Got it. Yeah. And and so speaking of Silicon Valley, uh, there's there's a beginning to be this culture uh, coming from the lean startup of fail early and fail fast and fail often and, and iterate rapidly. Have you seen that rubbing off into some of the Australian startups here? Yeah. And even at a more general level, if you think about um, how do you become a good founder? And I think 15 years ago, you needed to go to Palo Alto or uh, or, or Mountain View and have coffees with all of the founders and all of the investors and to just to understand, you know, how to build a, a technology company in the early stages or how to technology companies get funded. And I think with the internet, uh, it really brought about this mass distribution of that knowledge. And so if you think about all of the blogs and Cora uh, uh, and all of these great resources that entrepreneurs now can read and listen to and watch, uh, and, and learn about how to start a technology company and how to uh, raise venture capital and, and what is the venture capital world. I think all of that knowledge has been open sourced and, and everyone around the world, not just people in Australia, now um, directly learn from that. And so I think um, where the knowledge was, was uh, you know, cordoned off in, in Silicon Valley, now it's everywhere around America and everywhere around the world. Yeah, and, and hopefully uh, benefiting people around the globe to to be able to consume and, and take part in that in that ecosystem. Yeah, and look, you know, Silicon Valley is still the you know the central station of the startup world. But if you look at all of the companies that look like Silicon Valley companies, oftentimes um, they were started somewhere else in the world in the beginning. Um, you know, maybe as they raise their early rounds of venture capital, they move to Silicon Valley. But then, you know, as they grow, they don't grow in Silicon Valley. They grow in other cities around the world or around the U.S. Um, as such that, you know, the San Francisco office kind of looks like a pretty facade of the company that you think it's based in Silicon Valley, but most of the employees are uh, somewhere else in the world or, or the country. And, you know, Atlassian, I think if you asked anyone in America, they'd probably think it's a San Francisco company or uh, Intercom, the product is built in Dublin or Stripe. Mm-hmm. There's more engineers in London than there are in San Francisco, I heard. Um, so even all of these companies that you think are Silicon Valley companies, um, you know, oftentimes it's it's a more kind of global or more distributed uh, team than you think. Yeah. And, and is that something uh, at Blackboard you look for in, in some of your investments, how well they're able to leverage uh, distributed teams around the world? And and, uh, and do you help your companies do that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, one of the uh, great things about Australia um, or uh, in terms of hiring product people, so engineers or designers, um, software developers, um, you do have a competitive advantage in hiring people uh, in Sydney and Melbourne and being able to convince the best people to, to work for the company, uh, to be able to pay uh, a salary that you can afford, um, to be able to keep those people uh, at the company once they have joined and that, that loyalty to the mission your company's on. So um, I think you know when people are raising $2 million seed rounds now in San Francisco to hire five people that don't stick around, um, you know, it's just a very tough environment. I think everyone universally says that it's just really, really hard to hire great people in San Francisco. So I think the traditional route uh, of companies in Australia tends to be to build up the initial product team in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, then usually uh, they'll open an office in, in the US. You know, San Francisco is the usual choice um, where they'll build up more of that customer-facing, customer success, marketing, sales, uh, mm-hmm. business operations kind of uh, folks, but to keep product and engineering in Australia. And so it's not like a uh, 
an either-or decision. Should I choose to stay in Australia or should I choose to go to America? Um, it tends to be a, an and decision of keep product and engineering in Australia and open up an office in uh, San Francisco to be closer to you know what is likely the majority of their customers. Yeah, that, that makes total sense. How have you found the, the talent here in Sydney and where do you think uh, the, the pockets are in Australia where there's starting to be startup ecosystems and, and a concentration of uh, product and, and founder talent? Yeah, you know, Sydney and Melbourne are certainly have hit that scale of, uh, you know, globally relevant cities of, of great product uh, people. Um, Brisbane, you know, uh, getting there, Adelaide and Perth, uh, probably a little further behind. Um, but even if you think of Sydney as an example, so as we mentioned, there's, you know, the lighthouse company of Atlassian and, and Campaign Monitor, um, Google's local office. Uh, so Google Maps was invented and built in Sydney. Oh, really? Um, large parts of Google Chrome are built in Sydney. So Google has a engineering office in Sydney of 800 people. Those oh, wow. people are all really, really high quality uh People, uh, you know, were an investor in Canva that uh, a bunch of the uh, uh, ex-Google uh, uh, folks have joined uh, the company. Mm-hmm. One of the founders uh, used to work at Google. And so starting to see that uh, spillover or uh, after effect of once um, these lighthouse companies are built or these uh, large offices of global technology companies are built, um, you know, uh, encouraging that startup activity to happen. Got it. Well, that that's uh, fantastic to hear. Let's talk about sectors a little bit. Uh, in the past 12 to 18 months, some sectors that have really gotten a ton of traction include uh, financial technology, artificial intelligence, uh, augmented reality, and virtual reality. Have uh, Do you think those sectors uh, have been prevalent here in, in Sydney? And uh, do you think they still have legs? And what new sectors do you think uh, will kind of rise to, to traction and, and are you uh, looking out for? Mm. Well, I think as a, as a venture capital investor, um, there was, a, I think, a quote from Peter Thiel that once it's become a category, it's too late to invest in. Um, so you want to invest in Airbnb when it's a weird, yeah. um, you know, non-categorizable company. You don't want to invest in Airbnb when it's a, you know, there's the shared economy and the on-demand economy. Um, so categories, you know, can be very dangerous uh, for venture capital investors. Um I would also say that um, there are these waves of companies and waves of technologies like I think artificial intelligence is a is a wonderful example where if you just say artificial intelligence to me um, that's not interesting enough um, I think what it is interesting is when you reinvent or resolve um, consumer or business problems with artificial intelligence so it really really matters not that it's AI um, it really matters is you know uh, what really matters is um, are you scheduling meetings for someone or are you building a driverless car they're both um, underpinned by AI and uh, machine learning and um, you know to me uh, being able to uh, you know completely transform uh, transportation is uh it could not be more exciting uh, 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 an industry or problem to solve. And so I'm uh, very, very excited and bullish. And uh, we've made a number of investments in, in autonomous vehicles. Um, you know, if it is, you know, chatbots or uh, scheduling meetings or mm-hmm. those sorts of uh, problems, then, you know, we're not as interested. So, again, I think AI is, you know, one of the most exciting trends uh 
in in computing today, but um, it's really what problem I, uh, uh, is that pointed to that 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 is the ultimate determinant of whether it's interesting or not. Yeah. So let's uh, let's shift to policy for a second and Australian uh, policy and how it supports the, the ecosystem here. Uh, there was a recent new policy in uh, the beginning of July, which gives some tax incentives for uh, angel investors uh, and uh, early stage investors. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think it's coming at a good time? Do you think it's enough? And and do you think it will do the trick? I have like a. A couple of, uh, you know, perhaps not uh, uh, traditional comments on this, which is um, I think the government does uh, a lot of things that are, you know, so friendly to startups. So, um, you know, our fund, uh, our investors pay no tax on the gains they get from uh, investing in our fund, which is incredibly generous. No Um, taxes. uh, You know, when we invest in a company uh, and they uh, hire developers and designers in Australia, and pay them a dollar, they get 42 cents back uh, in cash after they file their tax returns from the R&D tax grant. So again, wow. uh, it's the seed extension or the extension rounds of the startup industry is provided through those government R&D tax grants um, and there's a variety of other things as well. Um, so all of this incredibly friendly uh, behavior from the government, I think the, the ultimate point for me though is the government doesn't really matter. Um, the government uh, can sort of reduce friction or can uh, encourage things, but ultimately it's up to founders to create great companies. And um, if you think about a founder that wakes up and says, you know, is my tax rate X or Y, or Mm -hmm. um, is this a great time from a government policy point of view to start a company? I don't think anyone actually thinks those thoughts. And so um, you need people to run into problems to be obsessed about solving them. And that's, you know, that's the magic of startups. And that's what ultimately creates uh, great companies is uh, founders and their connections to problems. And um, it's very difficult for the government to actually impact any of that. Um, So I think we just need more great entrepreneurs starting companies. I think as we have more success stories, they become inspiration for younger people to to go and start companies. And um, I think as all of the people go through these successful journeys at companies as employees have more confidence to take more risk and join mm-hmm. uh, startups at earlier stages or uh, even start their own companies. So I think that's more important is, uh, you know, are there lighthouse successful companies that are getting uh, built in Sydney or Melbourne or Australia in general? Um, if that's the case, then, you know, the ecosystem will continue to exponentially grow. Um, but if there's no lighthouse companies, then, um, you know, there's no ecosystem despite anything from the government and what they can do. Yeah, absolutely. And it seems like now with the successes of Atlassian and Campaign Monitor, uh, Monitor uh, and Vado, uh, you know, those those successes are out there and people are aware of them and, and that could provide pretty good motivation. Uh, and it seems like investors are, are noticing, right? Because uh, it, it, so far in 2016, uh, venture funds in Australia are on track to raise three times as much as, as 2015, which is a pretty breathtaking uh, growth rate. It's a pretty breathtaking growth rate on a pretty dismal uh, pretty base, small scale. <laughs> base dollars. Um, the other thing to note is, uh, you know, obviously, uh, you know, we hope we are very successful and our other local friends in the venture capital community are very successful. But um, the, the point to observe is that, you know, funding is a global market. It's not a local market. It's not to say that 
Australian technology companies can only raise money from Australian venture capital firms. Um, and in fact, you know, as you go later and later, um, the capital uh, is truly, truly a global market, not, mm-hmm. a, not a local market. And, you know, Atlassian raised money from Excel and Campaign Monitor raised money from Insight Venture Partners. And so if you look at who actually invests uh, the capital into uh, the successful companies. It has been American venture capitalists investing in Australian uh, startups or Australian technology companies. So, um, you know, if you create a great company, um, you know, what we've observed is that you'll raise money from people all around the world, mm-hmm. um, not just people from Australia. So I'd like there to be a great um, uh, local industry for venture capital. I'd like to succeed personally, but I think from the startup's point of view, um, capital is becoming more and more global, and certainly mm-hmm. capital is truly global once you get later and later into your life. Yeah, and now at Blackbird, uh, Blackbird's focused on uh, seed Series A, and with the new fund, uh, is it getting to be later stage than Series A? Yeah, I mean the way we put it is, uh, you know, we want to find the best Australians as early as we as early as we can. So we love, and and the majority of cases, um, we first established the relationship with the founders at the the seed round. Um, we raised more capital to be able to invest in every single round that the company raises. And even, um, you know, from the point of view of 200 being a big number or a small number, to me, it's still a small number in mm-hmm. terms of um, there will be these wonderful companies that are created. Um, they're staying private longer, or even when they become public, why would you uh, want to sell it just because you can sell it? You, I think if you uh, think of things as a um, you know, in a very rare few cases in your life, you'll be able to be involved in these truly iconic companies. And so to figure out a way to, to hold them over a very, very long period of time, um, there's like a stat uh, where if you look at Sequoia's ownership of Google uh, in 2004, when it went public, it was about a 12% ownership stake. And uh, mm-hmm. Google went public at a $23 billion valuation. Well, Google is now a $550 billion company. And so, um, you know, that 12% is worth roughly sixty billion. So yeah. um, their <clears throat> their two two point three billion went to sixty billion, um, and that that gain is more than everything Sequoia has ever done. So every single investment that Sequoia has ever made and ever mm-hmm. realized over its forty or fifty year life um, is usurped from not selling uh, in Google. Uh, not selling their Google stock from 2004 to 2016. Of course, they distribute their shares to their LPs and um, the, the people who work at Sequoia can can keep the shares and not sell them. But um, even just that, when it works, it really, really works um, on a grand scale. And I think people have underestimated how successful technology companies become when they, when they really do succeed. And, you know, Google being the ultimate example of uh, it's now the second most valuable company in the world. Yeah, that, that's incredible. And I think you, you saw that with Facebook as well, where mm-hmm. Facebook IPO'd at a much later stage than Google. And when the IPO happened, I remember a lot of people were comparing the two and, and saying private investors really held on to Facebook for that much longer mm-hmm. uh, as they were reflecting upon the Google experience. You know, and this actually brings up uh, an interesting point, which, which I've been excited to chat about with you. Um, and that's that you, you don't look for an exit slide uh, in in your pitch decks, which which I think is pretty cool, and uh, as a former investor myself, that's something that uh, we spoke a lot about internally, uh, and of course, working at a, a limited partnership under a general partnership, you have to have liquidity at some point. Mm. So, how do you reconcile that if you, if you don't want founders to be thinking about 
exits, uh, but you do have a fund to manage. How does that work? Yeah, uh, you know, I, and I'm not even sure if ten-year partnerships are the best structure for these kinds of investments. Um, I think you, uh, first of all, the reason for that is that you end up making the most amount of money uh, from investing in people who are doing their life's work. I don't think you make a lot of money investing in people that want to sell after two or three years. Um, and if you look at all of the iconic success stories, um, it's by people who are you know, spending their life's work. The Larry Page, you know, soon will be 20 years at Google. Um, all of those founder-led companies that uh, did well over the long term um, have generated the most economic wealth. Um, I think in terms of exiting investment, you need to be able to sell it. And so um, you really can only sell it for a good price if the company succeeds or a company is doing very, very well. And so, um, you know, the companies, uh, so if you assume that the company is doing very, very well will be founders who are doing their life's work, that's you know, you'll be able to sell. So the uh, the the kind of fantasy of uh, in two or three years, someone from this group of logos will pay mm-hmm. some exact price. Um, that never happens. Um, and so, it's true. Uh, the the what does happen is, um, you know, sometimes uh, those situations, you know, uh, the the person will decide to pay a very high price, and the founders might decide to sell. In which case, we'll uh, get dragged along, or we're happy to support the founders in that situation, and the the, the exit gets realised. But I think from the starting point of um, making a very clean decision in the beginning of uh, investing in someone uh, who is who is doing their life's work, um, investing with a view to holding the the equity for a very, very long period of time, I actually think also works in your favor of making a better quality decision. You're not thinking, I can get out next year, I can get out in two years time. And um, I think if you think like that, you'll actually make a lower quality decision um, going into the investment. And so, uh, yes, we have a 10 year fund. Um, Yes, we can't hang on to it forever. Um, But I think um, also to realize that you know, venture capital partnerships also have these different kinds of investors called LPs that all have mm-hmm. different um, motivations and passions. And I think, you know, one thing at Blackbird we've tried to um, build with our own LP community is very, very, uh, you know, long time horizons and people who believe in the kind of uh, companies over the kind of timelines that that uh, are being built. And so we've also been very deliberate there. And I think, um, you know, in anything in business, it comes down to people, not uh, legal structure. And uh, yes, it'll be 10 years. But I think if we have invested in people who are doing their life's work, then anyone will want to buy our, you know, minority stake in the company. And that doesn't prevent the founder from uh, continuing on from the business. Yeah, that that makes sense. And that it, it, that brings to mind a bit uh, uh, something that Graham from Y Combinator says, which is uh, do something that doesn't scale. And uh, he has an interesting uh, interesting essay about that. And I think he uses Airbnb as an example. And, and mm. to your point, really having that long-term perspective and, and taking things slow to figure out what works and yeah. working on, uh, on your life's passion. So back to Blackbird. Blackbird, it states on uh, on your website that you want to invest in companies that are global day one, uh, which I think is is pretty exciting and pretty interesting. What does that mean? Yeah, uh, so global from day one means that you have customers all around the world um, from the very first day. And so um, there's three different kinds of businesses that you know, we see started in Australia, and I think this is probably true for uh, countries all around the world that are not America. Um, so in one camp or one segment, you have uh, folks who look at what is going on in America, 
seeing is seeing what is starting to succeed and then trying to do the local version for Australia. So, <clears throat> sorry, uh, Uber for Australia or Groupon for Australia, mm-hmm. whatever. This year it's P2P lending for Australia. Um, yes. So uh, we don't do any of those kinds of investments of localizations of, of, of US ideas. Um, the Uber of. Exactly, it, yeah. yes. So if it's, uh, you know, the X of Y, yeah. then, then we don't invest in those kinds of companies. Um, the second kind is their original ideas, um, but you have to prove them out in some way uh, in a local critical mass. So you want to prove it out in Australia, then you want to go to, uh, you know, the US, then you want to go to Asia, then you want to mm-hmm. go. So it's this sort of uh, frog hopping sales and distribution model, which again is fine. Um, but at Blackbird, we've chosen to solely focus our passions on uh, companies that are started in Australia but have uh, are able to have customers all around the world from day one. So the best example that, that kind of uh, makes uh, uh, helps you understand the, the concrete nature of it is um, enterprise software. So you can choose to, uh, uh, when you start a business software company, uh, choose to have sales officers. You can choose to have business development managers and sales reps um, that talk to companies in this top-down way. So they talk mm-hmm. to CIOs or important people. Uh, you know, they have a consultative education phase. They have a, a trial. They have a hand-holding kind of, it's all very human interaction. So you, you need to expand country by country. Or you can have enterprise software where anyone can download the software or begin using the software for free for 30 days. Um, and it's that worker, the person who uses the software, making the decision to buy the software. So the marketing manager or the HR manager or the software developer or the project manager um, uses the software for free, pays after 30 days by putting their credit card down. And so it's all of these little um, uh, decentralized decisions. So mm-hmm. it might happen in a single company. It might happen hundreds or thousands of times. Someone might trial something, pay $50 a month, $100 a month, um, <clears throat> and it all adds up to that big, uh, you know, million dollar a year ARR sale. Um, but hundreds or thousands of people have made a decision, not one person. Mm-hmm. And so in that model, um, you know, the customers don't know or don't care that you're in Australia. The customers could be in America or Estonia or Pakistan or whatever country in the world. And so global from day one means um, there's no friction to geographic expansion. It's just wherever that customer who has the pain um, is, um, you know, can use and, and, and pay for the software. And so particularly in SaaS enterprise software companies um, using this bottom-up sales model that's global from day one, mm-hmm. those same companies could be building the same product um, and selling in a top-down way and having to open up, you know, X office in in, in Y geography, uh, and that's not what we do. What we do is the, uh, you know, the global from day one. Yeah, and going for more a volume viral strategy than yeah. the big knocking on doors, Salesforce, yep. uh, Oracle strategy. Yep, absolutely. And then, yeah. you know, in the marketplace world, uh, Australia has produced a number of global marketplaces. So we're mm-hmm. both sides of the market. Um, it, it doesn't matter where they are. So 99designs or Envato or freelancer.com, um, where both sides of the market doesn't matter where you are um, versus, say, Craigslist or uh, uh these other, uh, even Uber, where the both sides of the market need to be in the same uh, city. Uh, we've invested in a company called Bug Crowd, where it's a marketplace of hackers. So customers like financial service institutions and and other companies, automotive manufacturers like Tesla and Fiat, um, 
um, open up their technology infrastructure to a group of friendly hackers. All of the mm. activity is audited. Um, the hackers are everywhere from Russia to the Ukraine to the UK, wow. and Pakistan, and, and so on. So um, again, that's a global marketplace. Uh, so we'd invest in that kind of global marketplace where the local marketplace needs to build out critical mass uh, locally. Um, that doesn't tend to fit our global from day one thesis. Yeah, got it. And so you just raised a $200 million fund last year. Um, that is uh, coming off of a $30 million fund. It, was that your fund, first fund? Yes, that was. that's correct, yeah. Yeah, and, um, and so what's changed with the new fund, uh, and what do you think resonated with, with investors? So I think the... Like obviously the dollars change, but the strategy and the amount of companies we invest in, the stage of the the first investment, um, all of that stayed the same. So that's um, it can be a bit confusing to see thirty and then two hundred. But you know what we're doing here is trying to find the best Australians as early as possible um, and support them through the whole of their life. Um, so with the two hundred million dollar fund, it was actually uh, two funds. So one is the the second seed fund um, that invests in uh, very very early stage startups. And then a more significant amount of capital uh, in a follow-on fund. So the follow-on fund, once that first $30 million fund had run out of money, Mm -hmm. can continue investing in all of those companies uh, later rounds. And, uh, you know, we'll figure out how to invest in in, in every round of companies that are succeeding in our uh, portfolio. So I think the the strategy um, hasn't changed, which is eight to ten times a year, uh, invest in the best Australians early in their life as possible. Um, and try to support them all throughout their life. Got it. Where do you see the ecosystem in five to ten years? Do you do you think um, do you see Blackbird raising uh, another fund three three x the two hundred million? And, <laughs> and do you think competition for uh, startups will will increase? I think competition for startups will definitely increase. And as I said, um, it's a global market for funding, not Mm -hmm. just a local market. And so um, all of those US firms uh, that made late stage investments and and, um, made very, very profitable late stage investments, obviously they're a lot more comfortable to move earlier and earlier. I think also Silicon Valley is realizing that great companies get started anywhere in the world now. Um, When you have AWS and open source software, you don't need permission to start. You don't need to raise a couple of million dollars just to be in business. And so um, people all around the world just start wherever they are. And so I think uh, that trend has opened up Silicon Valley's eyes to other places other than Silicon Valley. Um, I think, uh, you know, you noted some of the statistics on the local venture industry. I think there'll be more uh, successful local funds as well. Um, So all of these uh, trends, I think, will get more competitive. But also coming from the point of view that it was depressingly uncompetitive mm-hmm. um, in the past. So even though the growth rates were high, it's basically because there was no investment. There was, you know, when we started four years ago, basically zero dollars going into the, the the local ecosystem. Now there is uh, a level that is uh, a lot more than that, but even that's not a significant amount of money in the scheme of um, the companies that are being created uh, from Australia. And so... You know, whether it's 3x uh, the fund, I don't know. Um, you know, we'll certainly raise more capital, we'll certainly raise more funds um, uh, with the companies, you know, in tandem with the company's progress that we're able to be uh, involved in. Um, I think also the industries of, of technology startups getting more broader and broader. So, um, you know, where the software industry used to be create a software company, you used to call yourself a technology company um, and then sell your software to the 
whatever industry. So if you you know if you think about the the greatest change to me um, of the last ten years have been companies' ambition from passing off their software to the incumbents mm-hmm. to trying to beat the incumbents at their own game with their software. And so Uber. 15 years ago would have sold its software to the taxi dispatch companies around the world and Uber decided not to do that and to become the best taxi dispatch company in the world Um, and I think that um, sounds very uh, uh, sounds like a small detail but is actually a huge lift in ambition Um, so I think vertical vertical integration and kind of the you know applying apple's model to to different industries yeah absolutely and that will create huge results that will create Mm -hmm. huge um companies that will come out of uh those efforts and i think um uh australia will be part of that in some way um so i think uh you know we won't even talk about technology companies um uh, in five or ten years, we'll talk about you know the best company in an industry that has technology in its DNA. Um, that that will be the winner over time, I think, in business. So, ending off on uh, on kind of a fun note, uh, for those who want to visit Sydney, what uh, what are the top attractions here to see, and what do you love about about your your city here? I think the uh, the most unique part of Sydney, and I used to live in um, New York for. Uh, little more than five years um, is just the wonderful beaches and harbor like it's truly a a very beautiful city that uh, you know half of Sydney sits on the the harbor which is very very beautiful um, the coastline of the beaches that's the truly unique part of Sydney I think Surrey Hills and uh, you know Redfern and Darlinghurst and, and uh, those sorts of suburbs are, are really great places but you know, probably poor imitations of the East Village or the West yeah. Village, um, whereas the uh, the beaches and, and the harbour side of Sydney is is truly uh, beautiful and truly amazing. And um, the the weather and everything else, uh, it, it's just you know one of the best places to live in the world. Yeah, I can say after being here for uh, for seven days now, uh, it, it truly is beautiful. The weather is fantastic and. Uh, I tried surfing, and it turns out I am not a natural. I, I was I was hoping I would be. Um, uh, thanks a lot, Nikki. Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in to episode one of Startup Journeys. I'd love to hear your questions, comments, and suggestions. Email me at startupjourneys at gmail.com. And you can follow me on Instagram at jessejourneys and check out my blog at jessejourneys.com. If you like what you heard, give it a review. I'm Jesse Phillips, and this is Startup Journeys.